Today, we interview Chris Howard, the founder of Ethos Recovery, and Roy DePerez, founder of Back to Basics Outdoor Adventures about the world of substance abuse and recovery. We talk about a modern world lacking in role models and secure family structures, how drugs and drug culture have become a dark rite of passage for our young men. Chris and I also debate the underlying reasons people use drugs and alcohol in the first place, and is it even worth kicking up all that sand? Even more importantly, Chris and Roy talk in depth about the various strategies used to get reluctant persons into treatment. And of course, what podcast on addiction and mental health would be complete without a conversation on the perks of ice baths and tattoos? My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. So we're going to start with Chris. Talk about yourself. I'm Chris Howard. I'm a substance abuse counselor. I do interventions from time to time. I'm a certified case manager interventionist. I have a long-term recovery house in Los Angeles, really centered around helping young adult males make the transition into adulthood, really. A lot of them uh, have never really had to adopt responsibility over their life. And a real essence of what the program is really centered around is helping them adopt personal and social responsibility mm -hmm. as a means of ameliorating some of the issues centered around you know mental health and substance abuse like really helping them define and develop a purpose in their life and that folks is why chris howard has ten thousand followers on tiktok i think it's uh, almost 15 now 15 now but honestly i'll tell you the one thing it's taught me is resilience yeah yeah, I, I, this last week, there was a video we had about, I was talking to a guy in the recovery house about sleeping in AA meetings. Honestly, it was funny because how on TikTok things get interpreted. And I was like, hey, dude, like, you probably shouldn't be sleeping in meetings. If you're tired, go throw some water on your face. Like, it's just like not a good look. It's a little disrespectful. Yeah. And dude, they went after me hard. Oh. A little emotionally taxing for sure. Roy, who are you and what do you do? And please, you're too far from the mic already. You can, yeah, you can bring it in. I told you. It's you can bring closer, it in. Dude. I told you. My name is Roy Dupree, and I have a hard time following directions, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm originally from Venice Beach, California, and I uh, grew up there in the 70s and 80s and, and uh, got the opportunity to go to college in, in Flagstaff, Arizona. And that's where I currently reside, raising my family and maintaining my, my business. And we're in the same field with Chris. You know, I, uh, I run a program called Back to Basics Outdoor Adventures. We work primarily with young adult men, 18 to 35, struggling with substance abuse, alcoholism. They're with us for about a year, going through different facets of the program. We have a hybrid model where half the week they're in the field. And what we refer to that is there's these weekly expeditions to places like Moab, Zion, Grand Canyon, Sedona. Those guys participate on the other half of the week in more of a clinical schedule, seeing their individual therapist, group therapy. We have a culinary program. Really? Um, yeah, they yeah. They learn to cook? Yeah. So, you know, life skills has been a big push for me as far as, you know, we're, we're in treatment, but now what, you know, and how am I going to apply what I've used in treatment towards becoming a, an adult? So you know? teach them to cook out in the woods? No, because we're, they're housed <laughs> in town and we're in Flagstaff proper and, and they're housed in town. That's where they would be cooking for the culinary class, but they do cook in the outdoors. All right. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I, I worked in high-end treatment for a long time and with all due respect to all the fantastic staff <laughs> that work in those places, I think it's an enormous racket because what you need to get better and Chris is nodding his head is connection and community and accountability and structure and, and faith in the process you don't need you know for the four seasons mm -hmm. and it's just extraordinary to me how much money people spend because they think that they they just throw money at the problem but what they need is they need an SLE 
right? They need <laughs> because the business model is centered centered around amenities. They figured really good marketing strategies, and it makes yeah. sense because right. it's what makes people comfortable. Mm -hmm. And often, in line with when we were talking a little bit about jujitsu before, is like you know discomfort actually promotes growth, though. Yeah, it does. And, and in a lot of these places, they're a little too comfortable, and then people leave. Yeah, and they relapse. People are like, well, why'd they relapse? And it's interesting. So I went down a, a I went down a little wormhole on the evidence-based research because everyone's like, well, we want evidence-based research. I found a study. It was like actually the last three years of uh, high rates of relapse for people who've been in luxury-based treatment. Not to say that you need to be in some state-run roach motel shitty yeah. facility. I'm not saying that at all. You right. need a place that nurtures love, compassion, community, uh, nice, decent accommodations. But Absolutely. You don't need to be in massage and yin yoga every day 100%. and i'm a yoga guy you're a yoga guy very much yoga yeah guy. i'm a yoga guy big time roy are you a yoga guy you uh, i you know i i only do those kind of things in emergencies where <laughs> <laughs> it does yoga in an emergency yeah i mean other, ben i heard you earlier you asked chris um are you into somebody are you somebody who doesn't like taking care of themselves or, or yeah. healing themselves and and that struck a chord with me is that you know i've got like probably six out of ten fingers working and I just got out of like two back-to-back -back surgeries and what happened to you? Well, I, I trained too and, and Oh you uh, trained jujitsu? Yeah. And, oh. and I, I tore my meniscus. Because those sound like jujitsu injuries. With yeah. Your and and I uh, yeah, I tore my meniscus and I've got a you know swollen shoulder now and a torn rotator rotator cuff on oh, the other side. Jesus. And <laughs> you trained really you've trained the wrong way. I, it, and it's not even all jits, you know, it's it's just a combination of lifestyle and yeah. things that like how I long push. Did, how long did you train for? Uh, it's been about six years. Okay. And um, you know, I, I feel like it's just been part of this like chapter two of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm late in the game, you know, for right. sure. But um, I really do have a satisfaction from training and, mm -hmm. and it does force me to be uncomfortable uh -huh. and, and, and recognize like my mortality. Yeah. You know, I, I train with guys that are 20 years younger than me, yeah. you know, that just faster, stronger, you know, yeah. how old are you? 47, almost yeah. 48. So um, one thing, yeah, yeah, growth. So what I tell people is that addiction is not cured, it's outgrown. You're not going to cure you, mm -hmm. you. The only thing you can do, and this is a Jungian idea, actually, Carl Jung is sort of my guy, is grow. That's the only thing there is, is greater mm -hmm. consciousness growth. It's all kind of the same thing. You're both nodding because it's fucking true. Um, in jujitsu, um, you know how there's like certain moves you avoid? Like a try, like I don't shoot triangles because I'm just, we're stocky guys. Like it's kind of hard for us. Sure. Right. But w I don't shoot triangles, A, because I'm not, it's an ego thing because it's very, it's like if I shoot a triangle, and it doesn't work, the guy will pass my guard. He'll bust it open. Being a black belt is the kind of the, 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 the dark lining of that is that everyone's trying to kill you. So if you try something new, right, it won't work. They'll just, they'll put everything they have into like, oh, I passed black belt's guard today. I'm awesome. I'm the best. So I got to deal with that ego shit. And then like your maybe my core and it's a flexibility issue. So if I start shooting triangles, I'll be doing all, the, I'll be doing, there'll be many things that I don't like doing all wrapped up into one move. So I'll grow, but sure. it will be shitty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but taxed. the only way to improve in jujitsu, the only way is to do shit you really, really don't want to do. Okay. Um, and lately I've been training without any, trying to like can my ego and just like, all right, I'm going to get beat. That's fine. I'm going to try this new move. And, and, and on, on, on Monday I went in and I did that and I fucking smoked everybody. I'm like, it was totally different uh -huh. me. It was great. 
And so I'm on a high. And, and I think that there's a lot of parallels with that. For me personally, you know, as far as like, I don't want to try new things and suck, yeah. you know, and, and I don't want to take the risk and not, you know, maintain the ego. Right. right. And, and so there is, there, we've been talking about that during this trip, you know, as far as like, I'm really reluctant to reach out. Like I'm not a heavy marketer, uh, even though I'm the face of the company and the, the owner and the founder, and I have, you know, all the experience and, and information to share. I don't like taking those kind of risks of, I don't want to call somebody and then them not call me back. And, and it's a, it's a parallel with, you know, me being an older guy starting in jujitsu, you know, is that like, there are some risks I need to take. There are some things I need to do to better prepare myself, but, um, I, it's an ego blow for sure. It's a man, it's a massive frame shift. So in recovery, I'm going to bring this back to recovery. Uh, Chris, uh, can you talk a little bit about the frame shift that people have to deal with when they get sober? Uh, in terms of frameship, what specific aspects are you talking about? Because uh, it's, a, it's a nuanced. Okay. Uh, socially, well, I could, many dimensions. Socially, there's a frame shift. They have to hang out with, they have to, they have to uh-huh. sometimes find new friends. They have to sometimes change careers. They have to change their attitudes about, hum- about entitlement. So the idea of surrender is, is like in humility is super important. Um, yeah. That you're not in control. Those are frame shifts. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll I'll probably tie it in a little bit just into recovery housing and then people who are just getting sober in general. I think the frame shift also is like, it's interesting because it ties into what we were just talking about is really risk-taking behavior mm-hmm. and how much risk-taking behavior the association we talk about it amongst uh like either professionals or even like globally is really like from a societal perspective is like very much it's it's associated with a negative thing and risk-taking behavior is actually involved in every aspect of our life like actually showing up here today was a risk i had to take was a social it? risk for coming into your house doing this <laughs> podcast that how am i going to be perceived am i going to come off in some weird way finding like, a parking spot in san francisco that's the biggest risk yes. yeah take your, your bags put take your bags into the house so that nobody's when they smash up your car you'll just you won't lose everything totally so there's all these risks that we don't even equate as risks Mm -hmm. and for people who are getting sober let alone like moving into sober living but just going into let's say a support group whether it's 12 step or you know whatever support group you choose to go to refuge you have to start with taking risks like your frame shift almost on some level has to be like a different form of risk-taking behavior and often you're so you're so numb from being shielded by whatever substances you've been taking for however many years. No one wants to embrace pain. Like this idea, like the Goggins mentality, so to say. Goggins David mentality? Goggins. So he's done like Navy SEALs, Green Beret. His whole thing is really embrace the suck. He runs like 200 miles. Is he the guy that says like when you're at capacity, you're only 40%? Like when you think you're completely out of energy, you're actually only- You're used- opening the door. Yeah. You just-, just opened a new door. And he talks talks about like this idea and and back to where we started a little bit about like luxury based treatment it's like how do we make you comfortable in reality comfort is really made us a little bit more sick in a lot of respects comfort was really me being on drugs and being yeah. able to socially withdraw i think about like a lot of the marketing commercials i see of people who are like getting sober it's like someone walking along the beach like oh you're getting you're getting so this is what recovery looks like and it should really be like <laughs> fucking miserable 
miserable. I have like social anxiety. This isn't actually a very fun experience if I'm totally transparent about it. The real steps in the recovery aren't really nice. They're extremely socially awkward a lot of times. Making amends. Making amends. Physically uncomfortable because, yeah. you know, post-acute withdrawal syndromes. They last up to two years. And then exposure to new social dynamics. Listen, I don't even roll jujitsu a lot. I rolled mm. a very short period of time. And it's often working with guys. I'm like, like you don't want to do AA. Maybe you should just go like try to roll jujitsu or go do something in some social dynamic. Whether mm. or not you want to be sober or not in a 12-step program, figure out somewhere where you can solidify yourself in community. And like jujitsu, you're working towards growth and development and it's nurturing discipline, accountability, responsibility. If you don't show up and you're dialed into that group, guys are like, where you been? And it has some of those same tenets as a 12-step fellowship. Well, well, folks get so, when you're on drugs and drinking, you get so insular in your little world, Roy. You wanted to add to that? Yeah, I kind of have a different experience or, or thought on that. When I got sober and I was 25, I was so done. And I had been avoiding AA since I was a kid. My parents have been sober forever. And they had me in treatment when I was in junior high. I was talking with my mom a couple days ago. I have a, a son that's in sixth grade. He's almost 12 years old. He's had a couple of incidents at school, minor. But I'm so sensitive to, is he going on that trajectory, right? Is he going down that path? And my mom has had to pull me to the side and, you know, like, son, compared to you, this guy's like an he's angel. He's There's, like he's got a lot of room <laughs> yeah. in comparison. Anyhow, but you know, being in AA, uh, being in twelve step program, and, and being sober myself, you know, it's been twenty two years, and I can remember the beginning being so enthused because I was experiencing immediate awareness and clarity. Mm -hmm. And that I was hearing things and people were speaking my language, even though I'd have been exposed to that demographic and that dialogue for years, it was just in a different place to hear it. And I'm a skeptic. Tell me about the moment. Like, what was your drug of choice? I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, I've smoked crack. I've tried acid. I've done all these things, you know, during that high school and early college years. And so you were 25 years old, and what, what did your life look like? I had just finished my undergrad. I was starting a company with two other friends, and we were in more of the social work, uh, working with adolescents in kind of an academia, social work capacity, and I became the liability to that company. How so? If I may ask. Uh, of course. Uh, yeah. Ask away. This is the great thing about working in recovery is that people will talk, will tell you yeah. the most gnarly details about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm an open book if you ask, but I, I won't necessarily just spill. So please I'm, ask. And, yeah, and, okay. And I'm, I'll, I'm, I'll I'm definitely disclose. I will ask. And and so what was going on is that like I, ha I was at that crossroads in my life where I kind of built myself into an adult position, but the maturity and just awareness was not there. And fortunately, a series of events had happened during that summer. I tore my ACL on a boat trip. I crashed the trailer. I uh, left my brother on the beach, passed out. It was just a series of events. I'd ended up in Mexico for a work trip and I had sworn it off. I wasn't going to drink. You know, I was done drinking after power. So all those all those injuries came from you were drunk and like you fell off a building or something? Like Dude, I was wakeboarding at the time and I landed what's called landing in the flats and it just, the impact on my and knee. And you were drunk while you were wakeboarding? I was drinking a little bit. Yes, I, I feel like. He had the bottle. He's out there on the wakeboard with the bottle in his hand like so bouncing up and down. I thought I was so cute that I used to put my, my Budweiser can in my vest and I would have a cigarette still lit in the water, holding the rope, pop up yeah. and do my thing. I bet I, you were cute. There was that, that bravado in that ego. You know, yeah, yeah ego total shit. ego. Uh -huh. So anyhow, uh, and That's then I was in Mexico image. at some no, no. mezcal. Um, I didn't see it though. <laughs> 
Just got to keep the keep the cigarette going. As oh, and there was not that you're a real. Cool. And then and then the flick when you were done, you know, as I'm like jumping the wake, yeah. you know, just like <laughs> such fucking young guy bravado. <laughs> so that that's that that describes kind of my flick. state of. It's so true. It's People so think true. they're so awesome when they flick a cigarette. Is. What is it about that? Like, I'm amazing. Watch me. Yeah, so I'm in Mexico. I swore I wasn't going to drink and I was, you know, going to be in this professional circumstance. Part of the tour that we were on, uh, seeing these pyramids outside of Mexico City, there was a mezcal warehouse developing all the mezcal there different flavors and i had this great idea that or a justification that i'd never tried this flavor i've never and this is like a cultural experience oh yeah i mean i'm mexican (laughs) i'm mexican dude there's no cultural experience that i haven't had around mezcal Uh and and um you're expanding your horizons uh, yes 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 um developing and and so three days later after just this little cup of raspberry flavored whatever or banana flavored whatever and that's that banana that's, mezcal that sounds good it was terrible that terrible, terrible. <laughs> terrible. Drink, original gonna, flavor here i'm gonna i'm gonna need a smoked uh, agave ooh. anyhow i totally compromised myself i compromised my group you know i was tore up and and uh that incomprehensible demoralization you know really kicked in and and i was fortunate it to get out of the country without any legal repercussions. What did you do? Try to burn down one of their pyramids? You know, I don't really remember, but there was some. <laughs> That's the real answer. That's no, how I, he knows. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I do have glimpses of where we were at, and they were not. But there was there was a lot of wreckage that night and the night after, you know. And and so it just put me in a position of like I had this opportunity to develop as a professional, and I'm totally compromising myself and others. Mm-hmm. And and although that wasn't the worst thing I'd ever done during my drinking career, mm-hmm. it was that event that really rang the bell for me that I need to maybe reach That's out. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't what do you make of that, Chris? That there's events that like you have a bunch of wreckage you've had like a bunch of duis you've been in jail and it's usually like this one little thing that happens what is that with drug addicts and alcohol it's so interesting because you 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 start hearing and if you really went down through like every single story that they went through you're like at the end of it you're like no that makes sense why that would but but then you hear everything else that transpired before that and you're like well why why was it this time (laughs) and i think you just burn out and get tired of like the same i just wonder what that burnout thing is it's like behaviors have an exp like attitudes have an expiration date and it's a mystery to me when the expiration date comes calling for me, fear is a great motivator. I mean, I didn't come to 12-step because I was on this virtuous path, Yeah, right? fuck that. <laughs> I mean, I was up against the wall. All the girlfriends were gone. All the like outside external stuff was just being stripped away. And I think that unfortunately for me is like, I'm out of a job. I don't know what my future can look like. Mm, I yeah. clearly like don't have a reset button here. Yeah other than to reach out. And I want to share this story is that for years, my parents were sending me third edition big books with these little passages of like, hey, honey, you might want to check this out sometime. And (laughs) so I I had at the time like five third editions, you know, next to all my books from college and all this, but I never cracked them open. I would say they did their best as parents, but as alcoholics to kind of keep their distance and keep- Oh, they they were alcoholics? Yeah. Yeah. At that time, uh, you know, they were probably 20 years sober. And they were in recovery? Yeah, yeah. They got Uh sober in their early 80s finally and i say finally because i watched them in and out of the rooms for a while too sure yeah so i reached out to the people i've been trying to avoid and project awesomeness to for Uh so long that was a facade because they knew i was in trouble and i reached out for help and i was fucking broken yeah you know and i think that that's what the expiration Mm -hmm. date is too is like inside i was fucking broken and it it wasn't somebody else's message that i got to do this for the world and you can both answer this this might be an impossible question what does it feel like to feel broken inwardly 
<laughs> what does it feel like to be broken inwardly that that's something that cannot it's one of those things where there's so much to that can't even be articulated in words like i think about when like everything came to an end it really wasn't even the end there it's like my house got raided by the police um and it's because someone told on me so there's betrayal and like all this shit and like being handcuffed crying all this shit going on and being like i'm done but then in a weird spot, like two is like not even knowing why I'm done is, is what's weird about yeah, that. Like, it's, is it because of that feeling? The reason that I'm drilling down on this is a shift in consciousness are really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So you have the sense of I'm done, a sense of inner brokenness. There's been a frame shift, I feel like, of some kind. It's deep. And I hear this from everybody in recovery. There's that moment or that weekend or that month or that year when people that are haven't quite got it yet who are still in the throes of their addiction they can't comprehend it because it's it's impossible to comprehend a shift in consciousness you know jung said that you cannot see beyond the bounds of your own consciousness by definition you can't see more than you can see uh -huh. right mm -hmm. like i knew a girl who lost 10% of her vision when she hit her head and she didn't know it till a neurologist said hey you've lost 10% of your vision how is she supposed to know if everything reduces by 10% how would you know that yeah, it's subtle enough <laughs> yeah. right yeah subtle enough right. to where you don't perceive it i've been i i haven't thought about that stuff in a while and i haven't felt or revisited that feeling in a long time i mean I, I could cry you know thinking about like that shift for me was so profound because i thought i knew everything and i know i thought i had all these plans and i had all these ideas and i'm a smart guy blah, blah, blah. and whatever the universe needed to do in, in that moment to mm -hmm. to give me that perspective it, it worked because i started this journey and i was super committed to the process and i bought into all the absolutes you know and and i think that it was important for me at that period of my life to have have those parameters that structure and I was hungry for that guidance too I still was hungry for that leadership and direction and I think that my relationship with God as I understand it and yeah. it's written in pencil has been that anchor for me and I'm willing to continue to pursue it and I know that if I'm got a clear mind uh, I've got a better chance what do you make of all the beauty that you've produced in the world out, out of the wreckage of your past that is the more enormous amount of good and growth that you brought to the planet yeah, I mean, dude, I just think of my son right now, you know, I, I, I uh, so <laughs> it's heavy because it was this Sunday and uh, we've had a hell of a winter as far as snow. There's a resort, you know, in my town and, and my son and I have snowboard and he's been on it since he's, you know, four and he's, he's doing really well. And we go into these sections called the, the trees. You got to be really good to be in that terrain. And I was having a hard time staying up and caught up with him. Mm -hmm. And I got to see his progression with something that I've been doing all my life, you know, and I get to share that with him. So I haven't cried a lot lately. You know, I've been so guarded and calloused, you know, just mm -hmm. over the, you know, whatever period of time I, I went through a divorce mm -hmm. starting about seven years ago. And, and I think that it hasn't been until recently that I'm really embracing like how beauty can be interpreted, you know, and how I can compartmentalize it or how I can minimize it, you know, and, and not in, even acknowledge or realize what's in front of me, you yeah. know, and here it is, this, this DNA of mine is right in front of me doing awesome. What was he doing? It's just that he was able to, you know, go through those trees and go mm -hmm. through those those obstacles mm -hmm. that that are difficult, mm -hmm. you know. And I mentored him through that, you yeah. know. And, and, and look um, you made. it's a special relationship that we have with that activity, and it'll continue to grow. Can I give you my impression of you? So I sometimes see some people as like 
who are all heart. It's like their heart has expanded into their limbs, and it's like there's like a heart. There's like this this heart that's Roy the Roy shaped heart in front of me. Like you're all heart, and it's it's really. I can see why you run a wilderness program, and I can see why you're doing what you're doing. It makes a lot of sense. Like you have so much to give; it's it's palpable how Thank much you. you have to give. And yeah, and 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 I I think that it hasn't been until recently. And we talked uh, earlier. You know, last Thanksgiving, I I had this like kind of epiphany or awareness that I've been spending so much time defending that heart yeah. and putting all these calluses and layers, and I need to let all that go. It's all it's all false bravado, yeah. and 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 I'm not able the to cigarette flick. Yeah, it's that. <laughs> Right, right? <laughs> it's a cigarette but I, yeah but i haven't intentionally been holding on to that yeah. it's just that like it had been my normal after 40 years i don't want to be that guy i want to be who i am yeah you're just beginning to step into your power yeah 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 listen i'm gonna i'm gonna stop picking on you for a minute and i'm gonna pick on your buddy yeah but thank you, you so much that you. was really helpful so chris what was going on in your life how old were you and you were what were you what was your drug of choice it sounds like you were into narcotics is that correct i was very much into narcotics it started off with pills. Started with pills. My mom, I had a mom who was who had like disc disease. My mom was also schizoaffective. So, oh really? Yeah, that's a rough one. So we used to joke around and say we thought uh, after a certain point, I thought our address was fifty one fifty. That's really funny. Because, which ironically ended up being a a blessing and a real curse because the police were at my house so frequently that when I would get busted, they would let me go. Can I just pause and say what schizoaffective disorder is? Please. Uh, so schizoaffective disorder is a form of schizophrenia wherein you have a psychotic episode every time you have a mood shift, like if you become depressed or anxious. Um, it looks a little bit like bipolar because it kind of comes in waves and it is devastating because they'll they'll seem fine for a period of weeks or months and all of a sudden something will happen, some event in their life that's upsetting and crack. And suddenly they think people are talking about them. They'll hear, be hearing things. They'll be seeing stuff. And it's really intense. Does that sound familiar? Yes. And at the time they used to say my mom was bipolar, paranoid, schizophrenic. Ooh. That's what they used to, the, that yeah. was what it was coined at that time. And yeah. I grew up listening to that. While we're on this point, when my mom would flip manic, when she would go psychotic, she used to utter these things. She'd be like Stanley Genzer, Heather Finn, Rampart Division, Hollenbeck Division. It turns out Stanley Genzer was the judge who took away custody of me uh -huh. from her and gave me to my grandmother. Heather Finn was the social worker who wrote the order. So it was like all these traumas, essentially. Oh, interesting. That had happened to her. She was picked up from Hollenbeck Division by my grandmother after she was sexually assaulted. The irony of all of this is my grandmother always had like followed my mom everywhere she lived and like my mom would stabilize and then as soon as my grandmother came back around she would end up de-escalating it would become like a pretty dramatic uh shift and then interestingly enough after my grandmother died my mom stopped having episodes oh interesting fucking weirdest case study ever i was like i try to talk to like psychiatrists and therapists about this they did do they shave her do they shift her meds or something no at one point she had an episode but it was because she had a lithium induced stroke because okay. they weren't checking she, her blood level is she still on meds yeah yeah okay yeah 100 yeah, my in my opinion um and i don't have any science to back this up but my sense is that when people that psychosis is is basically the dream world on the outside like whatever you're holding in becomes it's like the ego keeps everything under wraps right which mm -hmm. is good <laughs> and at night we dream and they look we like we go we go, we go kind of crazy but uh when people become psychotic it's like whatever their darkest fears are whatever they're repressing not always of course but often is just out there like projected in the reality yeah it's oh it's frightening to watch 
So anyway, uh, keep going. So so yeah, no, I my, my my drug of choice was pills. I basically got into pills through my mom, and then graduated to heroin. That was before fentanyl. Days. How old were you? So the first time I started really picking up pills, I was sixteen, mm-hmm. and then I went through pills until I got sober until I was twenty three, twenty four. I would intermittently shoot heroin, but then I didn't want to have abscesses, so I'd shoot heroin for a short period of time. Then I go back to smoking it. Then I go back to pills. Like I played like this game of control. Like I'm controlling my heroin use so I don't blow up into a, a you know, a full-blown IV drug user. Mm. Um, but <laughs> the I irony a, of that is amazing, isn't it's it? It's funny. It's funny. Like if I become a full-blown IV user, I'm not a full-blown IV user. Yeah. And I think looking back on it now, so much of my IV drug use specifically was very cultural. Like I went into a state run treatment center and in the state run treatment center, everyone was shooting heroin. And I was like, I'm going to go shoot heroin when I leave oh, interesting. here. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty transparent about it. It's nothing I'm proud of. I was a bit of a follower in that regard. Is that like the cigarette flick thing? Like I'm going to be cool? Yeah, it was. And which I think is a huge thing in treatment for young adults. It's like you end up in there. You might have like a weed induced psychosis problem. You go in, everyone's shooting dope and you come out and you're like, I'm not even that hardcore. And it became, yeah, I would watch like a lot of pissing contest for who was the biggest loser i played part of that pissing contest and i was like the first place i shot dope was san julian park in downtown la but i went and sought out san julian park in downtown la because now i get to tell the story of the first time i shot dope was in san julian park in downtown la it was really like counterculture shit and to, to elaborate on that it's like pill hill in san francisco yes Yes. To elaborate on it, part of that identity was really tied into all the men around me, everyone who I grew up around, they were all going to prison. Everyone who I looked up to, I felt for a long time that my ride of passage in the manhood was a five-year stretch in state prison. Oh, wow. Because everyone that I saw that I looked up to went into prison. And when they came out for who are these people? That- 60, 90 days. Guys who were like three to five years older than me who sold me drugs when I was younger. And I formed this some level of, of semblance of a family system because mine was so compartmentalized and fragmented and fucked up. May I ask what was going on that you were looking for all these role models at home? Like, were Well, you- I mean, my dad wasn't around. Okay. Not no, like, again, he had his own mental health issues and substance problems. And my grandmother was raising me. There was no male figures in my environment and the male figures that were around were two to three years older than me they were drug dealers we were all doing shady shit i was doing home invasions when i was 15 years old not because i was a hardcore kid but because the hardcore kids who i rolled with i wanted to be a part of and if they told me to jump through a fucking window or kick someone's door in i would have done it in complete fear and 99 percent of the time i was engaging in criminal activity i was petrified but i wanted desperately to be a part of this criminal element which was if i'm really honest i have friends to this day who are shitty human beings they're not good people really yeah 100 percent. i have a few people in my life that were were distant from each other but i love them unconditionally and and because through a lot of shit that i went through and mm-hmm. despite how fucked up they've been to every other person in their life it's never turned on me what's your definition of a bad person people who willfully inflict harm and injury on other humans for their own personal gain despite the consequences and and luckily i've never been in that spot with them because one i pulled out of that game much quicker Mm -hmm. and then i kind of became a source where i'm not going to be open to that because i'm not playing in that world i don't know how i ended up going down that route you found a family and when we find that it sticks 
you know, that's why I say that if you don't find community and sobriety, you're fucked because you have to find a new healthy family or it's just not going to work for you. Yeah, I think also there's this thing with uh, specifically young adult males. I, I think there's some fucking fire in us that needs to be put out some way. There's yeah. an adrenaline thing. The men I work with, a lot of what we're trying to do is a lot of experiential stuff because I'm like 12 step on its own. I'm I'm like, that's how I got recovery. Yeah. I'm like all about it on its own. Wasn't going to work for me. What kind though. of stuff do you do with them? Uh, we go cliff jumping. Uh, we, we take these guys up. <laughs> cool. we, we found a pretty heavy spot up in Mammoth. You cliff jumping. We do snowboarding. We take these guys to rock climbing gyms. Just different avenues to push themselves. Uh, you know, positive risk taking. Push behavior. them off a cliff. Uh -huh. Roy, do you notice that too? That adrenaline thing with young men? Well, I kind of want to piggyback on that. You know, we don't have a right of passage necessarily exactly. in our culture. Yeah, we sure And so what kind of inspired that comment is that like we're hungry for that at least uh -huh. identification or blueprint, right? Yeah. And and so in our culture, it's like, well, when I get to second base with this girl, I'm at this stage yeah. or tier. It's basically sex and getting a driver's license are the only ones we got. And, you know, and drinking beers, you know, like yeah. those are like initial, I think, introductions into adulthood or what's perceived as adulthood. And, and that's from a very young age, what I was pursuing. I watched all my older cousins who projected awesomeness with their boats and their hot girlfriends and boyfriends. And they had cocktails in their hand and, a you know, somebody around their arm. And I mean, I'm so young. So what do I know? but that's mm -hmm. what I saw and that's what I perceived as success. So when my association with alcohol and it being part of my life, that wasn't ever the outcome. You know, I always had consequences from the very beginning, yet I still was hungry for that that blueprint of what life could look like. And so it wasn't until I got sober that just comparing different cultures that have that identity and have that passage of information and recognition by their peers or by their families, we don't have that. It's like there's so much energy in young people that they go 100 miles an hour into a brick wall if they think it'll help them and they'll, they can go into any direction. They need guidance and we don't have that. And I think for the most part, at least in the, the environments I've been around, there wasn't any kind of plan. How do you identify an outlet for this? Yeah, what happened to our culture, Chris? Like what what Ugh. the fuck? It's not even the materialism piece that bothers me. It's the fact that we don't we don't raise our youth. Yeah. Have you heard of uh coddling of the American mind? Jonathan Haight just basically goes back to like back in the days, your generation, you're a little older than me, but even I was the last generation, born eighty five, where we played on the streets until the lights came on at home. Right. And that shit doesn't exist anymore. No. But how he ties in, he's a social psychologist, how he ties in is pretty eloquent. And he illustrates like we're seeing like these rates now of preteens and teens who have all this depression, anxiety, stuff like that. He talks a lot about how essentially like that time when you're out spending alone with your peers, you're <laughs> figuring out how to navigate the world. You're fine tuning evolutionary processes essentially within yourself on how you're gonna deal with interpersonal conflict, getting in trouble mm -hmm. out on the streets. Mm -hmm. And then even the aspects of deception are actually kind of important too. Like mm -hmm. how do I get in trouble and not, this doesn't get back to my parents. Like it takes higher cognitive effort. It's weird because I can have this conversation amongst us, but I wouldn't have that conversation around young people about like, oh, the value of deceit. Yeah. And Although there is some value in terms of higher level functioning because you're able to go, okay, in the future, this is going to kind of create more problems for me at home, you know? So anyway, you're, let's go back to your story. 
when you switched to IV, what was your... Oh, yeah, I went to IV drugs, and then I was bouncing back and forth. I had a friend of mine die. That was really probably the... I think I don't cry much mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. four or five times. I wish I could. I honestly wish I... There's times where I feel like I don't have the emotional capacity to let out, or I think sometimes I just... I well, like... you live in your head more than Roy does, I would say. Is that fair to say, Roy? I'm, I'm you're of, spot on yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah probably yeah, yeah. I, i'm the same way i lift my head up like i don't fucking cry well and if i'm really honest there's a part of me that i think cognitive behavioral therapy left a huge imprint on me in terms of when i was studying and specifically emotional reasoning emotional reasoning is essentially like when we believe our emotional world is an accurate depictor of what's happening in yeah reality. i mean like so in other words when somebody has a feeling that dictates the hierarchy so what's important so if the person is let's say somebody falls in love with somebody and suddenly the fact that they're in love with that person dictates what's important like that's more important than their job it's more important than their family it's that that is the thing because that's how they feel in that moment and then when they have a different feeling the hierarchy switch again and it's fucking chaos yes and that's why the thinking function is so valuable (laughs) yes and for me i think the imprint that that left on me also probably coupled with watching how emotions played out with my mother uh-huh. and seeing that's what my association was. I think for me, I I rationalize. I am a bit much more analytical about processes, uh, like the feelings we have. That's normal because X, Y, Z, I break it down. I'm like almost a robot. Did drugs help you feel your feelings? What did drugs do for you? What was heroin doing for you? So I have a weird perspective around like the whole drugs thing. I, I think for me, drugs, I it really... I, enjoyed the effect produced by drugs and alcohol i don't i don't think there's a magical i have all the trauma i I get that but what was the effect euphoria euphoria a warm you know what it is i can i I can articulate this one in speech i view it like when i see a child wrapped up in those what are those things called where they wrap them in the blanket when they're really swaddled a swaddle i remember like outside right now you go out it's a little cold out there yeah yeah you you a little oxy Take a little, smoke a little heroin. Yeah. You go outside, you're rolling around with the swaddle on. That's okay. what it feels so like. So let me, let me, um, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Yeah, ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. So I did see one of your TikToks about that, about how you, you felt it was just the effect. So my position is that the addict feels more than your average person. Now I can't prove that, but let's say you have been in a cold weather climate your whole life and you don't even know it. You're just so used to the cold, you don't even know it. And somebody walks up with a with a swaddle or a warm sweater and gives it to you like it's warm. The delta between the, how you're you're walking around feeling and the whole my sh- holy shit this feels good is going to be greater than your average Joe. So what I contend is that if you felt comforted that your walking around state unconsciously was one of extreme discomfort that you didn't even know how uncomfortable you were feeling. And I would actually agree with that. Here's my thing about digging up all that, though. Okay. I have a philosophy that sometimes therapeutically we're digging up things that we've evolved certain mechanisms for. Because mm-hmm. I have all the trauma. I mm-hmm. have all the discomfort. I mm-hmm. have all that stuff. Back to story. Like, what story are you holding on to? I'm a narrative-based guy, too. Me, too. So I go, what story am I holding on to? And unconsciously, I wouldn't actually refute that. Because I remember at one point, this is a really probably one 
one of the most traumatic things I can think of in my by life. I got sent to this foster home. Mm-hmm. It was the second time I got sent to a foster home. And my grandma was really into you remember did you ever hear of Trinity Broadcasting Network? <laughs> the televangelists. Yes. The people on I used to watch this. Okay, so my grandmother was a born again Christian. Oh, I'm sorry. And she was the one who took care of me though, right? right. I couldn't stand any of shit, but I grew up in it. That's like what I know. And she'd always pray and she put her hands on the TV on um, bending really? in and shit. No, she was the real deal, bro. Wow. It was a totally different thing. She put her hands on the TV and start praying, and she'd say, Humbody he does. She starts speaking in tongues. That's exactly what she used to do. That was the one she used to do. what? She used to do all that. I'm going to remember that. I ended up in this foster home. And I remember, I'll never, I can still visualize and put myself in there looking. I was sitting on the bunk bed. There was a TV on top of the dresser in that room. I remember turning on, which I was like nine or 10 years old. Uh-huh. You couldn't have paid me to turn on the Trinity Broadcasting. But at that time, I felt so alone. I remember crying on top of this bed with my hands up in the air, like trying to get, to, like, connect to my grandmother. I'm oh, like, yeah. please get me the fuck out of here. It's funny as I ended up getting out of there in like 48 hours funny thing it didn't change me religiously at all but i'd like to piggyback on that years before i got sober i was living in in mexico and and uh there's these beautiful 500 year old cathedrals and i can remember feeling some sort of solace there I'm, I'm Catholic by family background, but I didn't grow up in the church. But I felt like I was so hungry for connection that I found myself staying in those pews for a longer period of time than just the tourist experience. Like those were my initial pulls or, or being gravitated towards a, the higher power discovery well that was healing for you but for him it was traumatic i think is the difference but i think no, that you're no, hungry no. for i interpret it as you were you were hungry for just connection to at that point at that moment okay. no in that moment it was it was me like figuring out how my rescue from the current traumatic incident was connecting to this thing that connected me really to my grandmother ah, i see the truth of the matter is is like i began to resent god very much so because we grew up poor we had cockroaches my grandmother prayed to win the lottery and i remember at one point my aunt was like chris your grandmother doesn't understand that god doesn't do manual labor you still have to do work so i didn't become religious out of it i did have a positive negative thing so i think your original contention was that we gotta we have can't hold on to our narratives like that that sometimes things are better left alone is that basically what your your position is that like you don't always need to get into all this shit yeah i think sometimes digging up we're we're going farther kicks the hornet's nest it kicks the hornet hornet's nest it's also speculation it is indeed it's all it's all speculation at the end of the day so so for me whatever narrative i choose to create becomes truth um i i hear that uh, i think narratives though are formulated from the kind of the boulders of our psyche the, the foundational stuff and i think that even the narratives that you choose are based on precepts from from you you're going to pick certain types of narratives because of who you are and i i, I hear what you're saying uh, and I think it's true that we can, there's a whole thing in narrative therapy where you rewrite your story. 100%. But you have to rewrite your story based on stuff that is at least related to your experience, wouldn't you say? 100%. And I'm, I, I love that no one ever pushes back with me. So I like actually enjoy it when oh, it does I'll, happen. I'll come at you. No, no, I love it. No, I love it. No, it's honestly like a like a liberating experience to be challenged more yes because all of the things that we're constructing our narrative are often based on real life experience the thing i'm saying is is that experience can be interpreted in 
19 different ways but it's easy for me to shape a narrative based on my upbringing mm -hmm. that the world's a cruel place people don't stick around we're kind of fucked mm -hmm. you know like i that could have been my schema what ended up happening this is the narrative i have i remember at a point it was a custody hearing coming out of the first group home i had been placed in in pasadena mm -hmm. i remember being in the custody hearing and feeling like oh these people aren't here they're not going to show up for me it became self-reliance at that moment but it became a catalyst for growth and a lot of other maladaptive behavior as well too in all actuality i feel like it was a shield that helped me grow and that's based on that experience that narrative could have shifted multiple different times in a negative direction i also think that the reason why it's positive is because when i went into a group home i was surrounded by other kids who were from broken homes what was the new narrative the narrative was like you can't rely on other people um you need to figure out essentially how to rely on yourself for whatever mm -hmm. emotional right. psychological needs that you need and so here's where i would challenge that frame which is i think that's a good narrative to have but a lot of folks who don't come from adversity and weren't in a place where they were being you know brutally fucked over by the system and by life would have arrived at the idea of self-reliance they kind of drift through life without they're like they're basically functional but you have a passion for that narrative that you've got to knuckle under and do this thing Yep. that narrative would not have been created had you not had the other negative one 100 and that's that's my entire point 100 yeah you and i yeah like trauma promotes growth it has to <laughs> on some level yeah. well that's the gift of addiction you either change or you're dead <laughs> it totally is I have a, just a question for that comment about trauma. I mean, I think that, you know, maybe guys like us or people like us have responded and taken that and made lemonade, right? But are there case scenarios where it just was too overwhelming for certain people's, I don't know, circumstances? Not even that the trauma was so overwhelming, but them as individuals mm -hmm. weren't able to overcome in some capacity. Well, I don't know. That's a great mystery because when I work in treatment, I meet people with extraordinary stories. I imagine both of you have probably had brushes with death and you've met a lot of people who died right yeah yeah the thing is you're meeting the people who didn't die so whatever salvation they had in their soul whatever narrative they had going whatever grasp on reality or whatever mental faculty that was helping them was the thing that kept them from dying so you it filters for the most amazing people not to say that people who die aren't amazing sure but the people who couldn't cope the ones that you know or, sample bias is what you're talking about yes thank you 100 thank you for that sample can you bias. define sample bias well it's the sample you have to measure we yeah. don't have a, a representative sample of the population we only have the people who survive that's just by default and, or the though. ones who are in recovery in other words and there's this huge swath of the population that are addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex and gambling and everything who are barely functional and have no idea that they're addicts because they're so deep in it and the people around them are addicts and no one knows i think people in recovery are just the most most amazing population i think in the world i really do like per capita it's just extraordinary it changed my life i'm not i my my substance if i had one would be food i've been pretty we talked about this we did yeah, yeah over the phone we, we talked over oh the yeah. Phone. yeah yeah pretty serious binge eating 
issues. So I understand craving and I understand the the rationalization shit, but I, I don't I'm not gonna have a brush with death. But man, working in recovery was such an eye opener. That might be a rationalization right there. You might actually the binge eating gets out of control. You could have actually a more substantial brush with death because well later the health the long term health costs. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess. Well let's see. I'm I'm in pretty good shape now. <laughs> so. did, 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 did see push all that shit out. Yeah, you can't be a fat ass and do <laughs> yeah. I, I did see like I did see a video of a black belt who was like 300 pounds. But big 300? No, he was, well, he was big. He was tall? Fat. No, he was a big, he was round like a ball. You're using the derogatory term. The fat phobic term. (laughs) Motherfucker was fat, okay? What do you want me to say? He was 300 pounds, he was big, and he was a black belt, and he was smooshing his opponents. Yeah, 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 totally. (laughs) He had the smoosh pass and the smoosh sweep. Anyway, Roy, you were going to say something? I think I forgot. Boy, what did what did alcohol do for you? I was seeking something. I was seeking access to what I perceived as successful or happy joy navigation of life. And my parents were using pretty heavy when I was in my first 10 years of life. So I think that I was looking for something outside of what was going on in my home. And I perceived that alcohol was providing that for the people I looked up to. I coincidentally have a response to alcohol where it does like change my physicality and and perception of things and does does have a soothing effect for me. I can remember prior to drinking, and I, I was a, a chunk, speaking of fat asses, I was a chunkier boy. What I bring that up is that my stature wasn't small and frail. And so if somebody approached me to fight, it wasn't about that I didn't want to, I was afraid of the altercation. I was avoiding the emotional surge, the dis- discomfort. Were you anxious, kid? I wasn't an anxious kid. I just didn't, I'm just sharing that I, I wanted to avoid conflict. You know, there was conflict at home. I didn't want more conflict other areas <laughs> right, of my life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but once I had booze in my system and I got into my first altercation and all the punches were connecting and everything worked out and I was getting all the high fives and, you know, embracing. Fascinating. It, it was that switch for me. So not only were you drinking to be an adult like the people that you admired, but it also enabled you to function like an adult in a sense. In a sense that I could show up without hesitation. Very much an initiatory substance for you. Yeah. Fascinating. Chris, was there an initiatory sense? I mean, you said you wanted to be with the cool kids kind of in the park and shoot heroin and stuff. Was that an initiation thing for you, do you think? Yeah, I think the rite of passage thing was a huge element for me but the rite of passage was also home invasions you you too yeah i mean that was just part of the deal i wasn't even trying to get you know i'm not even accessing the same chemicals yeah but it was just part of that culture Culture. it's a culture we used to break you know how like when they fumigate houses and they put those tents over them you know and and in my neighborhood that was just going on a lot so we would just throw the bandanas over over our faces and and go in you know i mean we've had friends pass out and had to go back and get them but that was a thing wow and what's interesting is that like i talk about that almost 40 years later or 35 years later i would never even consider that as an option but at the time when you're you're surrounded by people who are just upping their game talk about a frame you know, it, it is. Well, the frame shift when you're in that mental headspace. I mean, we I, we were doing home invasions on other drug dealers and it was the high risk, high, 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 high risk situations. Not, not, re- 
No, actually having some perverse satisfaction over, especially people who we didn't like. There was always this idea when I was engaged in, especially criminal activity against other criminals, that you're a part of the game. And if we fuck you, I'm going to have, I'm going to get a perverse satisfaction out of it. And mm -hmm. I'm going to laugh about it. And at that age, I 100% started getting off. On, like that's the development of a sociopath in my uh. mind. I think you can create a sociopath. I know people think there's genetic markers and I, I don't, I'm not even discrediting that. I for sure was going down the path where I was desensitized to violence. Well, a personality disorder just means a maladaptive way of being that's counter to the culture. If you are exhibiting uh, sociopathic behaviors and you're consistent, well, I mean, who's to say you're not a sociopath? 100%. But I think that, like, I can compartmentalize my sociopathic behavior in the sense of, like, I'm going to be transparent. Growing mm. up as a male, you have this message of, like, scoring as many chicks as possible, right? Right. Well, sometimes you're in a relationship when that's going on and you can't, at least I could, totally numb that out that, the, that I'm compromising the trust and mm -hmm. connection that I have with this person because I'm seeking out this validation over here and one has nothing to do with the other is the the justification that i can create for myself mm -hmm. whether i'm drunk sober a young adult whatever so it just it's fascinating to me that there is this culture that built on itself like no one ever thought you know maybe we should just go and get real jobs or maybe go back to school and get our lives together but with like you're in a wholly totally different hierarchy of of accomplishment it's like if you can rob the house, you're, you've got your PhD in a way. It's funny because so much narrative now is about like, you know, being mindful of cultural appropriation and stuff like this, but there's no real talk about culture around substance abuse. And I think specifically, if I iron it down a little bit more is substance abuse around young adults and teens. Right. It's a different dynamic. There's guys who are, you can see when you talk to them and, you know, and they start tattooing their face and doing all this shit, but they're like, you know, from Palo Alto, dude, you're not hardcore. And it's not about being hardcore, but there's a cultural element to yeah. what you're trying to represent. And is prison and you said getting five years is sort of a badge of honor or is like that's your college in a way. Just to go to My college for me was getting like SFV. I'm from the San Fernando Valley. Like there was like this tattoo. It says like SFV across your stomach. And that just means he typically did something in prison. You put in work. What does that mean? Uh, you probably... I'll say it. I mean, I feel like when you put in work, you're usually, you know, stabbing somebody or creating some sort of scenario like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. smuggling drugs or doing... You're, you're doing something to earn... Risky as hell. Yeah, to earn your stripes <clears throat> within that collective group of people. But everyone who I grew up with that I looked up to had that. And the people who didn't have that were very close to them. It's easier access to accomplishment. Like, it's harder to make it to feel a sense of accomplishment in the sort of the straight world where you have to work a job, go to school, and do all these things. But in the criminal world, it's like it's right there. There's a house across the street. Let's go break into it. Is that part of it? I, no, I don't, I don't think so. I feel like we, we're not even exposed to what that looks like to have a real job in a normal sea okay. you know so i think that we're just surrounded by these guys that we perceive as like heroes in the community of mm -hmm. the criminal element and it's attractive ben i yeah. mean it, it really i can remember being fifth and sixth grade and it being so attractive what the guys were doing in junior high and high school and putting in work at such a young age and so that's the next steps i'm going to have to be involved in and was there ever a question that you were doing something wrong I mean, I think I always knew I was doing something wrong, 100%.
And what did that feel like to know that? There were certain people I felt bad about 100%, but there were certain people I compartmentalized and go, you this was the, we all signed up for this. We all signed it's, up it's, for it. Here, you know how I equate it? This will make sense to whenever I post this on TikTok mm -hmm. or wherever it goes on your podcast. See, there's a social agreement we're all engaging in right now. Mm -hmm. And as soon as this goes off into the ether, people get to comment and put whatever shit that they want out there. You're a fucking narcissist, Chris, uh, Ben, you're the worst therapist on plant what kind of advice the agreement is is i put that out i i become subject to that and the mentality when i was out on the streets was it was an old school mob mentality in my mind we don't we don't fuck with cops women or children anyone else though who's involved in this transaction of certain goods or services you opened yourself up to that. This is a product of the world that we live in. And at a young age, that was how I was groomed out to be. I had peers who were my age, but I wasn't listening to those dudes. That's actually who I was competing with to get closer to the three other guys who were my big homies. Ironically, as we're on this, I had a buddy. I, it's so crazy. Yesterday, I posted a picture of him. I mean, he died in, it was May 23rd, 2004, of an opiate overdose that dude, his name was Roak. His name was Michael. Um, but everyone called him Roak. He's a badass graffiti writer. He was my older homie. He was like three years older than me. And this whole time I had grown up, I wanted to be a part of this crew. I, I, we, I had a crew of kids. We had a group that was called FSU Fuck Shit Up. And then the, the crew above us was okay, outcast, or other kids, because we were the other kids, we we're the fuck ups. We weren't allowed to be at like, you know, the, the sorority dances or whatever shit like that was. And um, they were gonna finally put me down for the crew, which just means you're gonna be in the crew tonight. And he pulled me into the back room and he goes, don't do it. He goes, these fools don't give a fuck. We're not the family, it seems. You're wanting to emulate something, Chris, that's not really real. You need to get the fuck out of here. Which, for a 21-year-old at that time to say to me, it trips me out a lot of times. He was much older psychologically and emotionally than majority of us was. He was like, you need to get the fuck out of here and go to treatment. And then he died, like, fucking six months later, dude. And I think that played a major role in terms of my own... Like, I couldn't have told you before, like, I was a pawn in the game and right. i went down to shoot heroin because that was a cool part of the story and i did that after him i did that after him he had just planted a seed and then i had to start facing shit as time went on fascinating stuff wow i i just find it fascinating going down memory lane and what i thought was so important at that time in my life and how compromised i could have been if you know i continued down that path i think that we've been super fortunate what i'm hearing at least with chris is you have these god shots of messages along mm -hmm. the way at least availed me this off-ramp i mean i live at the, i live at the end of this cul-de-sac in a predominantly like conservative neighborhood i'm living that mr rogers life in comparison you know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wearing this dad sweater and you know <laughs> it I, covers up your tattoos uh, a little bit but you know i just <laughs> i don't even know if he has tattoos but yeah, I know he has I'm, tattoos. Kind of, I mean, I'm not as covered as chris but you know i i put in my work chris you're covered in tattoos i'm highly covered in tattoos <laughs> speaking of the tattoos i mean i haven't gotten any you know in the last 20 years but it, it was so important you yeah. know during you know that process and what i perceive is the development and i'm just super grateful that i, I have a, a seat at the table that i'm at currently and i know that i'm really privileged to be in this position today yeah where do you live i live in flagstaff 
and it's you know mountain town 7,000 feet I would never move back to the city I, I saw a video of a guy who was from a mountain town there he comes outside and there's all these fucking bald eagles on his lawn oh. they just chill there they're just chilling there's like 20 of them such a dope <laughs> dope morning to wake up you imagine yeah I mean I've got deer I've got deer in the green belt behind me and uh -huh. you know sometimes there's you know bobcats and stuff in the summers and you got hardcore tattoos dog oh dude what's your hardest tattoo? no it's not I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about it's tattoos a it's a joke it's a joke the funny thing about all my tattoos i didn't get majority of my tattoos until i had substantial time sober the, really the whole theme of actually all my tattoos is a gypsy it's mm -hmm. like i have a massive gypsy back piece there's all this other symbolism but so much of it is intertwined to what my existence has been the idea of gypsies is like we find home wherever home Maybe. is and we build culture wherever we need to do and they survive one way or another have you been a wanderer your whole life i think we all wander in one way or another not that's, to sound like some hokey uh like true. spiritual weird thing but i think we're all kind of you can be a sp hokey spiritual weird thing i don't mind it's one of those things back tied into luxury based treatment where when it gets too hokey and spiritual i'm like what snake oil are you selling me yeah why am i petting this horse yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should good you should do a tiktok of your tattoos you know i've thought about it i just i see people make videos and like let me tell you a story about my tattoos and i'm like i'm not i can't be that guy and also i feel like maybe it's something i need to keep sacred to myself like i go to the gym i go to la fitness because they have a really good sauna i like i'm big on sauna and cold exposure i saw your ice bath video yeah it's great we got out the you silver looked lady. you looked ridiculous in it yeah, i know but you saw my tattoos <laughs> i didn't see your tattoos i just like why is this fucker in an ice bath he's one of those Dude, ice bath so people it's so great it's so fucking great i i will take that one all day it fucking feels amazing so roy do you do ice baths i do yeah um, really you too at two brute jesus christ what's going on you need it i don't want ice bath what i said up in i feel like you feel he feels the vibe i need it what do you think it would do for me yeah well i know scientifically your boy andrew huberman he's like down the street here oh yeah you know who that is right Oh, the, 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 he's he lives here. Yeah, he's from Stanford. Oh yeah, he's yeah. Well, that's Stanford that street. Yeah, I was thinking like you're pointing to like you know, downtown. It's the same thing to me. I'm from LA, dude. It's like all Stanford. You could be like San Jose. I'd be like it's all San Francisco. You're so full of shit. Go on. <laughs> but it's it's cold enough that I I set up a trough near my hot tub. It's a horse trough essentially. Nothing it's fancy. Cold enough, but it's yum. cold enough at night that I can you know it's still icy and and it's easy to. And drain. what does it do for you? From my experience and what I've heard more and what I feel is like it resets the body you know it's like such a shock that it resets but then like stefan actually turned me on to that wim hof breathing stuff and it helped with me staying in so does it basically calm you down no so what it does is it increases dopamine around 240 percent and norepinephrine which is adrenaline around 520 or 540 percent i believe that. so focus but the dopamine spikes last significantly throughout the day okay. afterwards so i geeked out on the science because i follow Huberman, your boy. He's he's in everything. How do you know he's in my boy? How do you know he's my boy? It's a joke. It's a joke. Because I do listen. But I listen to him. We do that. Like, hey, I saw your boy last night, or I saw you know, and it's like usually kind of a a side jab of sorts. It is your boy because you know because you're from the Bay. You're from the Bay. Yeah, for those of you listening at home, the Uberman Lab is a podcast that I listen to religiously to, and I have no idea how these two guys know that I do, and it offends me that they are have crawled inside my head. But the bay to me is, like I said, it's not even really the bay. It's like from here to Willits. Willits? 
Yeah, are you my high? Mom. You're high. <laughs> are you a, sure you're in recovery? It's, 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 I don't know where Willits is. Willits is it's a bad place for okay. bad things. Okay. <laughs> we don't. The things I exclude from the Bay are Willits, Sacramento, and Marin County. Wow, the Marin, the Marin one. Wow, that's a bold Marin, statement. Marin, I have, I'm racist against Marin. Okay. It's just an awful, terrible place. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And when the revolution comes and I'm emperor, I'm going to force everyone to leave Marin and I'm going to make declare it a national park. You can have the Grand Canyon. You have to have like a ticket to like, so to, crazy to yeah. like go down the river and uh -huh. stuff. Sure. You have to wait for like 10 Permits. minutes. That's what Marin County is going to be. You're going to have to get a ticket to go check it out because it's so beautiful. But all the elites want it that way. No, they're, they're not going to be allowed to live there. No one will live there. Deer will live there. Deer, skunks, and raccoons will live in Marin County, and that's it. It's so interesting you're saying this because it, it's reminding me of this. I had this conversation with my, a client's parent the other day, and he's like, I felt like what you said was really judgmental. And I was like, I, I doubled down. I was like, you know, you're right. What I said was judgmental. My job that I get paid for is to be judgmental. judgmental. Yeah. And unfortunately, we live in a world where people think judgment is always a negative association. No matter what, we're designed to make judgments on people. I think probably I'm segueing a little bit in because I wanted to talk about this one thing sure. is like one thing I think that's playing into like a lot of the issues centered around recovery mental health is like how politically correct things need to be and in a buttoned up manner yeah i feel like it's making treatment space stale and stagnant yeah. and the reality is is despite what may be happening out in the ether the world people are going into is fucking it's treacherous well, you have to call things out you can't separate judgment and perception if you call a thing out you're seeing it uh -huh. And if you're seeing it, you're judging it. And if you're judging it, you're seeing it. So fuck it. Say it. And if you're wrong, you, the, the key around judgment is to be flexible about changing your perception of what the... Like maybe you judged it. Maybe you were wrong. Okay, so I got that wrong. All right, well, let's, let's work on that. But I'm going to call I'm gonna call stuff out. Roy, how do you get parents to get their loved ones into treatment? Once again, I'm piggybacking on what we've just talked about as far as this direct conversation we need to have with those families because they're most of the families that are coming to a program like mine have been successful in their own lives in some sort of capacity, mm -hmm. but have failed in this situation, you know, as far as the addiction and their loved one. And so it is interesting that all of a sudden I'm talking to these CEOs of big corporations in a capacity that they're probably not accustomed to, but I have to be as honest and transparent about their situation and mm -hmm. and give them that information and if they continue to pursue you know an application and follow up and pursue us then i obviously did a good thing but what what sort of tactics do you use in the moment when you have somebody who's thinking about putting somebody into treatment and they're kind of hesitating you know i don't have a tactic in the sense of i feel confident in just bridging what we are mm -hmm. and this is what we have to offer it sounds like you could benefit from something like this you're way nicer than me. i am you're i am you know what because I, I don't want to be so car salesy or convince them as much as I want to just offer them some information. And I know that's a little bit softer, but in the admissions process for me, I don't want to start off in a negative tone. I think where I come from is that I think I hold all the people that I've seen die yeah. in the moment. And I'm like, part of it's my shit because I get a little bit angry at people who get delicate and, oh, I don't want to hurt this person's feelings. It's like hurt their feelings. Yeah. <laughs> but Ben, that's evolved for me. You know, when yeah. I, I, I was coming, let's say 15 years ago with a tone of you're loving your son to death and <laughs> you're a fucking dumbass. And I need to just massage that message. It's the same message, but yeah. it's just delivered a little gentle. Well, maybe I have something to learn from you. 
And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not told that a lot. But, but do you go into a first session with a family like that? I can. You can. If I think there's something. If but I, there's an intuition piece that. Well, you, I don't just do that. I mean, I have to gauge the. Of course, I have to right, read the right. room. That's you, what I'm saying. So know. it's not. So it, it can be misinterpreted even like because through audio or even us having this conversation. It's like, well, you're not just rolling in. Family sits down. And you're like, hey, you're <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I, there's a buildup yeah. and an intuition that you have based on each individual experience. And you go, this parent's. Well, let, let's just say there's a parent who is sort of hemming and hawing about the cost of treatment and i say yeah you know um what are the okay my phone like, what's the prices of coffins like let me just look this up real oh, quick oh man yeah, cool. like oh, oh yeah are you want to do any side shit. work you know that's like old school shit. you know that but i mean I, but i'll do that but I, I don't always do that i mean that's just sure th that depends or i'll say hey listen can i be really frank with you i'll say look i want you to understand this is my position i'll, I'll usually ask permission I'm like hey can i speak to you in this really really basic way about what i see here because this is what i'm seeing I only speak to people in a really harsh way when I really know that I've got buy-in and that I know they can take it. Because yeah, I don't yeah. see a lot of people get kind of, they, they're using that opportunity to be pretty sadistic. And of that's course. not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is what I what what I make it really clear to the parent or to the friend or whomever it is is that this is coming from a place of love. And I'll say that. I'll say, look, this is coming from a place of love. I'm trying to preserve life. Can I tell you what I think needs to be done to preserve this person's life? Which I think is better hearing you articulate that the way you articulate it better than the first bit where you said it. <laughs> because it it also demonstrates one of the issues I have with a lot of people because I like I you see my TikTok. There's one video where I'm like, bro, you act like a fucking tyrant also what people don't understand is there's a lot of love and compassion tied into this yeah. whole circumstance it's not just the 30 second bit you got to watch of me having this uncomfortable transaction with this guy there's so much nuance and time invested into that relationship i think the other piece is that if i get someone who's like a salt of the earth person who's more like you know blue collar mm -hmm. i don't talk to them like that because they've had enough of that shit mm -hmm. It's the white glove thing. It's mm -hmm. the it's the we don't want to get anybody's hands mm -hmm. dirty thing. And I'm like, I'll tell you a story. So my shrink told me the story about this woman. Her her mother-in-law was this really stuck up kind of arrogant, wealthy. She was coming to visit and she was having all this anxiety being judged and this woman coming into her home and stuff. And so the, the day finally arrives and she's there and she's kind of, her mother-in-law is kind of looking around with you know narrow slitty eyes and kind of like, you know, and then the dog, they were out in the country and this dog, their golden retriever been out in the fields rolling around in all the cow shit. And the dog runs up the porch and bashes through the screen door and jumps up on the mother <laughs> and gets all the shit all over her. <laughs> and, but there's love in that. You know yeah, what I'm saying? It's yeah. like so. What I, I what I try to do is I try to bring people into the into the shit a little bit, I suppose, because their son or daughter, whoever it is, is in the shit, and they don't really realize uh -huh. it. They don't realize how yep. greedy that stuff is, and if they're going to help them, they're going to they're going to have to get down there and get shit under their fingernails, right, mm -hmm. Roy? Is that? Yeah, and I just want to clarify too is that a lot of that is self preservation of my own energy too. Yeah. So if true. I've got this new client, I don't even know if they're qualified. I don't know the background. So yeah. before I invest that intensity because mm. we're good at what we do I, yeah. I can clearly tell that any of us in this room can communicate really well with this circumstance yeah but it takes a lot of energy out of me to be on 
Yeah. You know, to be on. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I don't know if this person's going to come to my program anyways. That's true. And I don't actually do this as much as I used to. And like only half of my clientele are in recovery. And mm-hmm. so I don't have to be, you both were on the front lines. And I, and I, and I was much younger when I was on the front lines and I'm not as like, yeah, it is taxing. Sure. That is true. So I have the luxury of saying, yeah, you know. <laughs> but but my staff does pull me in. You know, there yeah. is this kind of thing that goes on. And, you know, we need to pull Roy in on, on this family or this situation. Yeah. Because they know I'm going to come in with that intensity. Well, I'll send some people to you if I can't uh, figure it out. You're the good cop, I guess. No, no. I'm the bad cop. Oh, you are the bad cop. What, work. what I was trying to say is that my staff will pull me in when we need to bring that kind of heat. Oh, But okay. I'm not doing it on the front end with the admissions process. All right, all right, all right. You know, so yes, I will have that conversation. Those direct, like you are right. killing your kid. He's been here six years and you're sending him all this... You know, so fluff. Let's um we got some time left, um, maybe ten minutes. What do you guys think makes somebody get into treatment? Like what's the their golden formula or not? No, there's no golden there's formula. No, there's no golden formula. There's no golden formula. There's circumstance. What I what I will say is that the bottom shit is nonsense. I don't I don't believe in you need to be at bottom to hit treatment. I think real quality treatment providers can create a bottom within treatment. Oh, interesting. Um, through motivational interviewing, like insight based. Yeah, that's true. Like I, I don't like bottom is what is it when you're dead? I mean, that's a bottom, right? That's uh, the ultimate bottom. It don't yeah. get lower than that. I consider myself a higher bottom in the sense of like i probably had a lot more room for more compromised whatever but Mm -hmm. i think that i was just done and i'm grateful that i didn't have to wake up in you know incarcerated for decades you know before it worked for me that is definitely a door that was open and available i mean that sincerely like i don't try to promote my story any more than it is it just is yeah it was enough for me how much of yourselves do you of your personal story do you share with the people that you try to get into treatment and i'm I share in a general way with mom and dad when it's time for him to maybe interview. I hook him up with a staff that's probably closer in their age and can speak their language a little better. I don't have a background in opiates and and a lot of the drugs that are being used these days. So I do believe that I'm perceived as the old guy who, you know, what does he know kind of stuff. How about you, Chris? Um, I I self-disclose pretty openly. Also, it's hard for me to even justify not self-disclosing when Mm -hmm. every aspect of my life feels like it's on the Mm -hmm. internet. I get a lot of pushback from people who tell me, well, you're not an alcoholic, you're not a drug addict, what do you know? And I guess my thing is, do you need to have had cancer to be an oncologist? Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? Like, mm-hmm. do you think that someone needs to be have a background? In no, that? right off the rip. I was thinking about three therapists we work with regularly who we make the referral out to. They're in the basket all the time because they get it. One yeah. of them, I she, yeah, she for sure has got some exercise stuff. That's for sure on the borderline of addiction. But relationally, they're the wizards. This is also for both of you. How does doing this work in recovery help your recovery? Or help yours feed you. I think it's two separate things. Okay, same one. It ha- for me, I feel like I have to fill my cup up outside of my work. If I'm getting paid to to talk to these guys or to create this program, I don't believe that's part of my recovery. I think that there's maybe glimpses of like, oh, I just witnessed something I don't want in my own personal life. But I I have to definitely fill my cup in a outside of work, and that's always been the case. And and I believe in that okay. for myself, Chris. It's a piggyback. I think I'm gonna say I actually don't think it's helpful. 
I think working in this, especially in 12-step world, I don't, at the end of the day, I don't want to really go to a meeting. I want to go to a meeting less than I wanted to go to a meeting before when I didn't want to go to the meeting. So now it's like double less. I don't want to hear anything else about recovery at the end of the day because I've already been talking to everyone who's struggling with mental health, substance abuse. Even if I'm not dealing with a demographic that's primary substance abuse, at the end of the day, I don't want to feel like I'm being of service, if I'm really honest. And then... Here's the life lessons. When I suit up and show up and do the thing I don't want to do, I often end up having these experiences when I go there that I'm like, I'm glad I showed up. It just, it, it, at the end of the day, there is a narrative for sure within myself that I do not want to do this. I just wanted to mention is that I can't rely on my own intellect to sustain this work. And so that's why I keep bringing up, you know, I got to fill my cup outside mm -hmm. so that I can bring something to my profession. Certainly. Last question. What would you say your message for the world was if you had a message to deliver to the world? And that's might be impossible because you might have several messages, but if you could pick one strong one, what would, what would you want everyone to know that you know? I can go first on this one. I think about it quite frankly because I'm constantly thinking about how to elevate the youth because I think the youth is where it starts. I think a message I would want to articulate out to people is no one at the end of the day, we're all selfish as fuck. And with us being selfish as fuck, it's not an alcoholic thing either. It's not a substance abuse. It's not a mental health thing. It's an evolutionary thing. We're designed to be selfish because survival's fucking hard. If you can understand that, some of the interpersonal conflicts, some of the shit you have to deal with with other human beings doesn't feel so bad. You can view people in a more generous way rather than the world's out to get me. I got dealt this shitty hand. I'm fucked. People are fucking shitty. Da, da, da. All that shit's true. It's not not true. There's a lot of beauty also in the fact that people, despite other human beings being shitty, suit up and show up for you despite all the other shit that they have going in life because them being of service for you in those moments actually helps them remember maybe humanity or their own utility, their ability to be of uh, help to another person. And if you can figure out how to encapsulate that into your own life, you might ameliorate, make better some of your own personal suffering. I am a firm believer and it's not grounded in like hokey 12 step or anything like that. Service is 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 your way to freedom it's an opportunity when we're stuck in the worst situations i've been in in my life i've be, figured out ways to get up when i do not want to get up i don't want to do shit for anyone else all i want to do is lay in bed and think about how rough my life is and how fucked up this situation played out being of service is uh huge and there's multiple is a huge catalyst for change and there's multiple ways for you to do that to sort of embrace the selfish aspect of doing service and to know that it helps you to help others. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Right? At least currently, you know, at this stage of my life is that the contempt prior to investigation. I'm here in California visiting for, for this week. You know, there's obviously a lot of homelessness going on. I think growing up, I just didn't have the information of how people may have gotten to that place. I remember my mom, she was picking me up from school and this is in Santa Monica in the you know early eighties. There seemed to be just a lot more homeless in Santa Monica at the time and, and it's its own city. So I think that there was a lot of concessions to welcome that at the time. And so she had shared with me that some of these guys might've been war veterans and there's the mental health component. And I'm trying to digest this as, as an eight year old. And so that was my first awareness of like, hey, I don't know what might be going on with that person or what their background mm -hmm. might be. 
what perception of like they're just freeloading off the system or they're all just shitting on the sidewalks and it's like who would want to live like that anyways mm -hmm. right so it's not like it's a big f you to us in society it's us in society that's kind of compartmentalized them and now it's an eyesore for us for example i don't know what the solution is and so i think that that's that's just an example of like i don't know what's going on with that individual other than it might be a little discomfort for me yeah i ever i walk when i walk to jujitsu i go straight through um basically the i'd say the outskirts of the tl the tenderloin it's it's our at pill hill it's uh i go right by eighth and uh it's our the gym is on eighth and howard it's pretty rough and uh I really actually do walk through that and remind myself that I'm not different than any of those guys on the street. Mm -hmm. That they took a different path, that that, even though that's a very unhealthy path, that it's still a path. And that they were circumstances, mental health issues, whatever it is, drugs, uh, who knows, that that's where they are and we are equal. And that having yeah, having contempt for that kind of stuff is, I think, really toxic. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it hurts people. Sure. When they look at the people like that and go, oh, that person is down there. I think it actually does damage to the brain, honestly. I think your daily meditation exercise might be the, the, the healing of that, though. Like actually having to walk through that and think about mm -hmm. the reality of like... I think I get more out of that than I do out of the jiu-jitsu these days, honestly. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I saw, I'll never forget, I saw a guy, I'm pretty sure he was, there was the, the ambulance was pulling up and he probably OD'd and, and he was lying on the ground and, and on the cement and... You know they're surrounded by trash and the needles and they were just holding his head and petting his forehead wow and it's like it's like it was such a reminder like Humanity. the human that's yeah. a human fucking being yeah you know like i remember i was walking uh, this time and the the paramedics there was a guy i'm pretty sure he was dead who died in his tent and they were dragging him by the ankle down the street like he was a sack of fucking potatoes like that was the end of his life sure that was the last thing that happened to him was that he got dragged down the street by somebody who was just like, oh, we gotta, we gotta, yeah. I want to just say full disclosure, I felt that way working in the industry, you know, where I've just yeah. gotten so like jaded <laughs> and, you know, it's like true. this guy it's can't get up. it or whatever, the yeah. parents can't get it, you know, yeah. and, and I, I get, you know, I get to that place. And, and so that's, that was a red flag for me at, at yeah. a certain point in my profession too. Well, listen guys, uh, I think this has been a good talk. Really enjoyed it. Um, thanks for having thanks us. for being so open and coming all this way and we'll be me. back up here in another quarter and they brought me a sandwich i had a sandwich for lunch and it was fantastic it was the best sandwich ever paris bakery monterey <laughs> <laughs> all right guys listen thank you so much thank you, thank you. thanks right. ben thank you for listening if you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my show you can contact me at benjamin at gmail.com and if you want all the contact information and details on the fabulous Roy and Chris, please head to my program notes. Thanks again and tune in next time.